G'day. Welcome to Project Leap. This is a podcast for doers, as you would have seen on our Facebook page. Before we get to that, though, my name is Meredith Pappas. I am a small business owner and entrepreneur uh, based in Mackay in regional North Queensland. And uh, I'd like to now just throw to my other wonderful, fabulous co-host, Tara Nevin, who is based on the Sunshine Coast. Hey, Tara, how are you going? Hey, Meredith, how are you? And so excited about this little endeavour. It's very exciting. It's been a long time coming. It has been a very long time coming. And uh, just as a way of introduction about myself, I have been a regional uh, business owner for about 15 years now, starting in the Pilbara, then the Gladstone. I still actually have a business in central Queensland. And I'm now on the Sunshine Coast with the consulting education business um, and actually do a lot of work with entrepreneurs and innovators in regional, rural and remote regions. And when I hear their stories and I'm working with them, one of the things that started this labour of love with Meredith was the fact that these guys needed a voice for some of the amazing innovations that are coming out of these regions and and I believe are really uh, driving the economy of Australia with some of these uh, businesses and innovations and even just galvanising communities to make change and to to do something different. That's exactly right. And look, Project Leap is all about taking a leap and those who are willing to back themselves, um, you know, take that leap of faith and have a go. Uh, they, As Tara says, jump off that cliff and and see what happens. I, I read once that um, running a small business or any venture actually is uh, just like jumping off a cliff and learning to build the aeroplane on the way down. And I think that's a lot the way a lot of people feel about it. And you know, in metro settings, there is a lot of. Um, You know, there's a lot of networking, there's a lot of advocacy, there's a lot of stuff out there uh, for support. Whereas in regional settings, uh, a lot of people that you talk to feel like there's not that advocacy. There's a lot of tokenism, but there's nothing really real. And that's what this is all about. We're not out to be controversial and, and big noting or anything like that. What we are out to be is a voice. It's to give some kudos and opportunity to those people who are taking that plunge and doing something wonderful in our regional, rural and remote settings. Yeah. Yeah, we'll certainly, um, you know, we'll certainly get to the issues and we'll certainly uncover those issues and discuss them in a really open manner. But what we want to do is highlight and tell the amazing stories of the people who are out there. Like I said, I'm based in Mackay. Tara's based on the Sunshine Coast. That's a big divide, but thanks to technology, our guests are all over the country, literally all over Australia. Uh, And in that regional context, that's something really quite special that we can have those conversations. I'd also actually Meredith, I also want to note that we couldn't have got this started without our incredible partners and sponsors. So I'd like to thank 1,000 Invisible Threads, Amanda Powell Digital, iScribe Consulting, KZN Media and Purple Wax, some of the most incredible partners to really have got this idea off the ground and uh, we can't thank them enough. When two mad women come to you and say, hey, we want to do this and you've got people who are willing to back you, that is very cool. And when I say two mad women, that's us. But you know what? This is not just a, a women's podcast. We want to make that really clear. This is about the men, the women, geez, even the kids who are getting out there because you hear these stories and you see them on social media about teenagers who are getting out, finding an idea and doing something really quite incredible with that. So, what, we, what we're appealing to you, our audience, is if you know someone who has a story worth telling, and let's face it, we all do, please drop us a line. Get in touch with us at our Facebook page. If you don't already like us, please like us. We love to be liked. And uh, just share with us your, um, your story or the story of someone you know. 
Now, speaking of that story. So, thank you. Uh, Richard's actually, I met Richard through my business in Gladstone and uh, and sort of was really inspired and amazed by what this woman did when she first arrived into a regional area. Um, and I'm really looking forward to asking Richard some of those kind of pointy questions to help us understand what motivated her to do that and actually what were some of the, the strategies and frameworks she had to put in place to make it happen. So, Richard, uh, her actual reputation proceeds her. She arrived into Gladstone and she took on the role of the president of the Gladstone Multicultural Association. She's also the chair and I understand founder, but I could be wrong about that. We'll ask her that question in a minute of Women Connecting Women. She's a community member of uh, one of the Japanese sister cities in Gladstone uh, and she's also recently started, so she's quite galvanising from a community perspective, but she's also recently started a new a business or took over a business by the name of Jewel Nation, which sounds Celebrates being from two nations and being having passion for Australia and a passion for another country that you come from. And there's a bunch of products that she actually delivers to to celebrate that. Um, Richard's a very proud Australian and also a very proud Indian lady. And she lives in Australia in Gladstone with her family. Uh, she has a bunch of degrees and qualifications, but we're going to talk about that as we go through the podcast. And we're looking forward to having that conversation. So welcome, Richard. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Meredith. This is very exciting. <laughs> well, we're glad you're excited. We're excited to have you on the podcast. So thank you taking time out of your busy schedule. You are welcome. Oh, this is good. This is good. So, Richard, um, very interesting. Can you tell me about, let's start with Dual Nation. So, tell me about your experience with Dual Nation and, and the business innovation and the idea about Dual Nation. I think we'll get to the community innovations in a minute, but tell us a little bit about Dual Nation. All right. What the, the idea and the concept behind Dual Nation started with a lady by the name of Mandy Weedman, who's quite popular in the PNF and PNC fundraising uh, space. Um, but unfortunately, she didn't have time to run the business, so I got to pick it up. And the concept that she had, I have gone ahead and grown it into what it is today. Um, the idea behind it is to be able to give each and every dual nationality family or individual a chance to celebrate their pride uh, that they have for wherever they're from and Australia at the same time in a very fun, cool, non-abrasive kind of a manner. So, yeah, that's what Dual Nation's about. So, I mean, that's a really big thing, isn't it? And I love, I love the fact that you can, you can say, you know, I love... Greece or I love India or I love France and I love Australia, you know, as all of one. Uh, I look at my own kids, they've got, you know, I'm just a mixed bag, but on my husband's side, he's got the French and the Greek. So come the Olympics or come the Soccer World Cup, oh, it's on like Donkey Kong. So it's just really cool that you've got these products now that we can go, right, we're not going to feel bad. We can barrack for everyone. That's great. It is. It is. Um, and I find that it, it is, it's, it gives everyone a chance to say, Hey, listen, you're not different from us. You are Australian. Yes, you are from India or Greece or France, but you are also Australian because that is a, quite a sensitive issue when we, you know, when you're a migrant and you're coming into a community. So, Richard, tell me a little bit about your why. Like, what motivated you to take on uh, take on this business that actually be started started from someone, and it was still actually in very early startup in the first place. So, what's your why for for running a business in a regional area? Well. I've had the opportunity because of my parents to travel the world, not just Australia. And I got to see a lot of different communities working uh, together to do certain things. So what I would see there, and once I moved here to Australia, was that we migrants either 
try not to say, oh, we are from India, we are from France, we are this and we are that, and because we don't want to offend the local population. But at the same time, we also don't do that, or we also, on the other hand, go and say, oh, we'll just stay within our own community group, and you know that'll make us feel home and not be ostracized and so on and so forth. So keeping that in mind, and what we were talking about before with Meredith, Meredith about you know just a match coming in and you want to root for both the countries, um, when I saw that and the way the communities were just becoming very, very centered and very inclusive amongst just themselves, that plus what Mandy was doing in the infancy stages, those two came together and I was like, well, this is an option. This is an opportunity for me also as a migrant to say, we can do this. Why not have pride for both? Because it brings flavor, it brings spice to not just the food, but the dancing, the language, the, you know, the community at the same time. It's really what the Australian makeup is, isn't it? Like when you consider Australia's roots, our history and everything else, um, we are a diverse and multicultural melting pot. You know, none of us, absolutely none of us come from a single stream, which is Australian. So that's something that Oh, there's some people who have a bit of trouble accepting that though, don't they? So I don't wanna I don't wanna be the elephant in the room question here, but have you copped that? Have you have you had a bit of that going, no, you come to our country, you're Aussie, mate. That's it. Mm, yes, we have had it, not just personally, but hearing some stories. And it's not it's not racism or bigotry, we won't touch that. But um it's just People not understanding, like you said, Meredith, you know, some, they don't realize that everybody has come from somewhere else. There's, they've come on a boat or an airplane nowadays, you know, and they've become part of everything here. And I think it's not just true of Australia. It's true of any and every country in the world. When someone else new comes in with a different skin color, a different name that they can't possibly pronounce, um, a different way that they look uh, and wear and talk and dress the accent, we get a little threatened when we are locals and because we don't understand it. So, yeah, so that's when that comes in where they're like, oh, we don't want you here. Go back to your own country. So while we have not directly copped that too much, we've had some questions asked of us. Where are you from? Why are you here? Uh, isn't it better in India? Did you have elephants in your country? You know, stuff like that. Foolish <laughs> stuff as well. <laughs> That's all right. We get harassed if the kangaroos run down the main street, don't we? So. <laughs> and, I, and I find that really interesting, you know, your point you're making. And actually prior to this, I was doing a bit of research about the statistics of migrants in regional areas and particularly migrants of business, like business owners that are migrants. Um, and I mean, the, the, the statistics actually vary depending on which stat, which report you look at. But um, I think probably one I found was around 32% of business owners in regional areas of Australia are migrants. And I guess then it begs the question, what is a migrant? Um, you know, is that from another state or another country? You know, um, so I'd be really, you know, from your experience also as the you know, president of the Multicultural Society in Gladstone, how do you find those businesses engage with the community to make sales or do, are they selling externally? I mean, how have you found that they actually build a business around when they arrive to a, an area that they don't know anybody? Um, a lot of the businesses specifically, and I'll talk only about Gladstone, uh, is that they try to provide a service or a product that 
goes with which community they're from. So, for example, there are a number of, there are a number of spice stores here in Gladstone, and they cater, say, for example, to the Filipino community or the Indian community, African community, and so on and so forth. So that is one of the things that I've seen a lot of the migrants do because they want to. They know there is a need. And therefore they cater to it. So they do that. The other, uh, business, um, uh, owners that I've seen in Gladstone have been the petrol pump owners. It's a need. There's no one to work it or mm-hmm. they don't have the capital to, uh, you know, buy that petrol station or be a franchise owner. So the migrants come in, they buy it, they build a business and they try to engage with the community, um, you know, providing something that is an everyday need. So yeah, I've seen those things happen as well. Um, the other th- third type of owners that I've seen here are the hotel and the motel owners because the fabric and the economic situation in Gladstone has changed a little bit with one of our biggest industries uh, moving out when they were done. So those motels were being run by the locals initially. And now that the huge population and the income that was coming from it has moved, I've seen that a number of these hotels and motels have been bought by migrants. They're refurbishing it, they're renovating it and offering it at different ways. So they're putting their roots down basically, <laughs> you know, and trying to provide something. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting point there. Um, Bernard Salt, a well-known demographer in Australia, talks about that. And it actually came out of the Snowy Mountain Scheme when the Polish were brought here to build the Snowy Mountain Scheme. And they he made that comment that the evidence is, is if they come and put down their roots for four years, they generally stay in that region so in some respects you know migrants and migrant businesses are actually um, continuing to engage the threat of these regions to some extent and I think that that's really important I have one question though when you're talking about the migrants with business in these regions a lot of them are servicing the local region and I guess the, the, the difference in that is that your business doesn't and, and doesn't need to. It can actually go global. How how do you um, picture your business? Would your nation going at least well, at least nationwide anyway? Coming and, and just delivering outside of that local region. Um, I'm hoping that in the in the days and months to come, it will become a national. I would like to say, use the word phenomenon, where you know <laughs> <laughs> it'll be like that. And I have this. V- this recurring dream slash nightmare that I will walk out of my house and everybody will be wearing my, you know, my t-shirts with the different things. Uh, <laughs> so having kept that in mind and everything else, um, I've also found that, you know, it would be good to go national because Australia being as big as it is and with the migrant population being as high in percentage as it is, it would be really nice to be able to give that community connect to the migrants and give them that pride. You're talking about a couple of different um, communities there and different tiers of communities, aren't you? You're talking about the local community that you're talking about, Gladstone, and, and how that's building up in a business sense. But then you're talking about these other virtual communities almost, aren't you? So you've got these two different tiers. How do you interact there and how do you make that all happen? It's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard. It is the question. Very, yeah, it is very hard. But uh, what I decided to do was, um, I'm a firm believer in uh, Simon Sinek's uh, golden circle. So go from inside out. So I've kept that in mind when I'm trying to reach people. So I decided first to get in touch with all the community group leaders here in Gladstone and and go ahead and go out from there because a lot of these uh families with that IKEA have um you know friends family cousins uncle aunts whoever they are 
in different cities outside of Gladstone, outside of Queensland, and so on and so forth. So that's what I thought was easy because that would also give me live feedback about the product, about the delivery, about the design, and so on and so forth. So I decided to do it that way. On the other hand, when I went live with my website, I found people calling me and messaging me from Tasmania, from Western Australia, uh, from Melbourne, from all those places also wanting it. So Facebook for that matter and, and Instagram for that matter gave me that platform to go nationally, which I hadn't initially planned. I wanted it to do, do that, but not at this stage. But since it's happened, I'm just going with the flow asking them questions. Do you know of community groups? Do you know of other people? Refer us, you know, and let's see how we can make this happen. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> You're jumping off the cliff and building the plane on the way down, aren't you? Yes, yes I am. <laughs> yes, I am. And I hate jumping off of anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Hey, well, you mentioned about the feedback. I just want to touch on that point if we could, because it's something that I remember I was at a conference once and, and the, the hair guru, Stefan, he said, the greatest gift someone can give you is feedback, especially negative feedback. So when you get that, now I'm, I'm sure you're getting rave reviews, but when you get any feedback, what do you do with it? Like how do you, do, do you tabulate it? Do you chart it? Do you, I don't know, what do you do and how do you use it? Um, the, ne- the negative feedback that I would get, um, I've had a few, obviously, uh, because people want to understand and they want something certain ways. Mm. Um, so what I've started doing is that I have, um, I've made an Excel sheet that I'm regularly feeding in all the feedback that I'm getting, whether it's negative or positive. So if they've not had a good experience, then I obviously get back to them. I have their numbers and stuff. So I get to give them a call or message them or email them and say, can we talk about it? Uh, we did have an incident where, because on the day that my printer sent out a number of t-shirts of one country, another lady wanted a separate one. It got a little bit mixed up. So we, I did speak with her. She was really, really nice, the lady. And she said, hey, it happens. What do you want me to do with this? I mm. said, well, if you know someone of that country, you're welcome to gift it, keep it. You want to return it. It'll be a cost to you, unfortunately, but you know, so on and so forth. So I dealt with it that way, talking to them and got them the next product, Express Post. You absorb a little bit of the cost when it comes to the money bits. But I think it's really, really important to deal with that negative feedback if you get anything or constructive feedback um, immediately and let not just the person who gave you that feedback, but all the rest of the community also know that, you know, we've changed this way. We are listening. We are mm. hearing you. We will, you know, work with you to make things, you know, for you. So, yeah. Uh, so I guess it makes you... You're using your communities more effectively then, and that's how it does interlink, isn't it? Yes, it does. And 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 it's good because in the long term, these are the people who will, again, and it sounds very cold and strategic, but these are the people who will recommend us to other people and not have a bad taste in their mouth thinking, oh, I, I did not like that and they did not, you know, talk to me or do anything to make me not feel bad. So you convert that, you know, into a positive thing. So. so I'm really interested in the kind of taking a step back in terms of the journey. So what was, what were your sort of inspirations uh, and motivators along the way? And this isn't obviously just in Dual Nation or even to make the decision to go into Dual Nation, but in, in your, you know, the galvanising of the community work that you've done and I guess also what would be some of the biggest challenges that you've faced in that journey? Um, when it comes to inspiration, I have to... Um, Give a shout out to my mom (laughs) because at the time when she started doing what she was doing and running her own business, 
Women in India were not doing that. They were following the traditional roles of being kindergarten teachers or school teachers, which is fantastic. But, you know, that's not what she wanted to do. So I give her that, that, that role of inspiration saying, Hey, you know, I saw you do it. You're a female. You're an entrepreneur in a setting that was not very, very non-traditional. And I too can do it. So I give her that. On the other hand, I have uh, personally talked to uh, and visited with Mandy Weedman and she remained, I'm a big fan, um, and I see how she deals with everything. She's got a fantastic business and the way she goes about balancing her work, her life, her employees who absolutely adore her. And I've seen that happen and I'm like, well, the lady has five kids. She's got a life, which is personal, yet she's able to do it. So therefore I too can with just two kids. <laughs> so that, that <laughs> so 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 just two kids. <laughs> if anybody's listening that Mandy Wiedemann has the fundraising whisperer. So we probably won't be interviewing her because she's not regional, but she'd be worth following on Facebook. She's oh. got some really interesting ideas. So mm. thanks, Richard. All right. And uh, when it came, comes with motivators, my two kids, they're my motivators. We are a migrant family. We left everything that was comfortable for us um, and decided to move here for them. And when I look at them and I see what they're up to and then they say jumper and water and they say Arvo, <laughs> I look at that. <laughs> and on the other hand, they will come. them really fast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <Yay>. And, <laughs> yes. Oh. And at the same time, they're also using um, my native tongue language words as well, you know. So I look at them and I'm like, well, you know, they're going to grow up here. They're going to grow as, you know, hopefully world citizens. And uh, why not let them not have that pride? I wouldn't want them to think, oh, because we are from India and people call us brown or curry or this, that, and the other, we shouldn't have pride in that. And at the same time, be proud of where you are getting all these, you know, arvo and water and jumper and stuff where it's yeah. In a way, I guess what you're doing and the fact that you are taking real ownership of that, especially with the dual nations concept, it's beating the, the, the naysayers and the bullies and the racists and everything else at their own game. You're going, yeah, baby, I am and I own it. So I think that's tremendous. Good on you. And, you know, actually, if you want to put a big vision to that, uh, Richie, you know, in some respects you're, you're galvanising the nation. I mean, yeah. you've got people with dual nation T-shirts walking around and twice the pride T-shirts walking around everywhere being proud out of being a dual, you know, from a dual nation around the country, I think that that sends a pretty powerful message to, you know, integration yeah. and advocacy for the fact that we're one of the largest immigrant, you know, we're very, we've got a lot of immigrants in our country. So It is important. It is important at the same time because, I mean, um, and I don't mean to be in any way rude to any of the locals and everything else, but when I look at my hospital here, I see a lot of non-white, if I may use that term, and non-local, you know, um, uh, doctors there and pediatricians and everything else, they are coming here. They are serving our needs as well. Not because Australians can't do it, but because they are, you know, they have those skills necessary and we are upskilling our Australians. So when mm. I see that and when I hear that they say, oh my God, that South African doctor can't even speak English. You know, I don't even understand. I feel... <laughs> What? <laughs> I wish we had a video on this podcast. <laughs> I'm just 
just going to say, I wish we had video on this podcast just for that. Just for that. That was awesome. <laughs> so when I hear all of that, I feel really, really bad because yeah. they are servicing a need. They are taking care of your health in this example. And so on and so forth. And they have just as equal right to be here. They have as equal responsibilities when they come here as well. And that, that I feel is really, really important. I would love to see my dream nightwear come true where everybody's wearing it. <laughs> I think it is a dream come true. The only nightmare would be for those that don't want to see it and, you know, let them have their nightmare, I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the challenges that I faced uh, when I was starting this was, of course, every small business owner looks at some sort of a uh, um, you know, funding situation where they have the funds available readily in order to either buy the business, in order to grow the business, in order for promotion and advertising and so on and so forth. So that was one of the challenges. But thankfully, thankfully, um, we had, we did, we were able to, my husband and I were able to secure a loan and do that. But the other challenge that I've had is obviously finding those people that would buy into the idea and the concept and say, hey, this is something that we want. Because there's also an element of fear because you wonder, so if I wear that T-shirt and go out, is someone going to come up to me and say, go back to your country. You know, you're, you're proclaiming your pride, but go back to your country, do it there, you know, blah, 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 and everything else. So, but thankfully I've not had that yet. We've had a num- number of photos come in from Australia Day where... Lebanese and Greek and so many people wearing their t-shirts and showing it off to me, you know, so that is a challenge. I wake up to that every day and go to bed to that with that every day, the fear that, you know, something like that might happen and someone wearing my design might get ostracized. Does that make sense? So Mm. yeah, it it is a challenge. And actually on that, we talk a lot, well, we, you know, we're very interested in this concept about that concept of fear, you know, Um, and someone once, uh, you know, as, as we've said, it's like jumping off the off the cliff and building the plane on the way down. So what is the thing that actually makes you take that leap? You know, you're standing there on the edge of the cliff looking over there, over that cliff, and, you know, you know the fear and yet you're jumping off anyway. And I think that's, in a way, the difference a bit between entrepreneurs that don't give up and keep going and those that actually do because you keep getting up and jumping off the cliff, climbing back up again and jumping off again. What is it for you that actually motivates you to do that? What motivated me to take that leap uh, was one, a physical person, my husband, and second, the belief that he had in me, which said, what is the worst that'll happen? You'll fail. We'll be in debt for a little while, while we, you know, take care of the loan and everything else. But if you don't do it, you will really never find out if you could. So you have to, it's a, for, for me, that is what I decided. I was like, well, yeah, you know, I'll do it. We'll see if it grows. If it doesn't grow, I'll just be like, oh, well, you know, done. I'll do something else. But it, that's what was there for me. Do it otherwise. Someone said yes. And, and that, you know, you had someone, a support person that said yes, yes I guess. And yes. there's been many entrepreneurs I've spoken to in the past that there's been no one that said yes. They've all said no, you can't do it. It's not possible. It's never going to work. So then jumping off that cliff is a lot harder. So yeah. does that put more fire in your belly too? I remember I had a year six or seven teacher who told me I wouldn't amount to anything and that just made me want to do it more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also personality type, you know, like people like you, Meredith and Tara and, and to a certain extent me, if someone tells me you can't do it, I'd be like, I'll show you I can, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> that kind of thing also happens. It's a personality trait, but at the same time, again, like I said before, 
if you don't do it, you will never find out. But if like, for example, sake, we have kids, obviously. Um, so I have to keep in mind their requirements, their needs and their financial and the financial constraint it might put us in before taking that leap. So having my husband say, babe, we can do this. Go ahead, try it out. It meant the world to me to know I won't have to feel guilty about mm. it. So yeah, that, that was really that makes really a big bad. difference. The guilt, quick, can we just quickly touch on that? Because this is one thing we don't want to womanize this. There's enough of that out there. We don't want to womanize this, this podcast, but you mentioned about your kids being a big inspiration and you mentioned about the guilt. Now there are two things for any mothers or any women actually who are listening. Um, and you know what? I believe a lot of men who are listening as well will go, Oh my goodness me, my wife or my partner or my daughter or my mother deals with that all the time. I was time. about to challenge you on that. I think men have the same experience. I think, yeah, they I think do there's too. a guilt. You know, I think they do from my experience yeah, of male entrepreneurs. They do, but I don't think, I guess it, it spills over into the corporate world more for women and not so much for men because it's more structured. And I don't mean to be sexist there, but I do think it's more of a thing for women. But how do you deal with that? Whether you're a female or a male, let's let's put the equilibrium in place right now so that Tara and I don't end up calling each other names. <laughs> um, but let's put that in place now. How do you deal with that guilt for anyone? Richard, how do you get the pus out? You drink it. <laughs> you drink off your liver. Now that's a girl after my own heart. Uh, no, the, the guilt thing I think stays uh, with each parent, um, e- either way or the other. And uh, I think if we are responsible parents or in, in a family unit, that guilt is shared. Um, for example, say, can I personalize this because we've, I've just gone through it. Um, I was guilty about putting, you know, extra financial constraint for my, for my family, any kind of needs. And, you know, obviously family comes first, the kids requirements come first. My husband was guilty about not being able to, and he confessed that to me recently saying I was, I would have been guilty if you'd not done this because you have the potential and I didn't support you just because of what money. So the guilt was shared for us. So for, for our, you know, in that, and then we talked about it, we drank a lot and then we were happy and then we, we dealt with it that way. <laughs> I think the, the, the key to any kind of dealing with the guilt would be to have honest conversations with your partners in crime, whether it be your partner, like your husband, your wife, your spouse, your, whoever it is, is your trusted person. So you know that they understand why you're feeling so hesitant and they will then also be able to say, I was hesitant about it too. And then you work out strategies to, you know, make it happen. I would like to now move back to your community involvement because you're not just this amazing entrepreneur and and taking Dual Nation and making it national. You also do an incredible amount of work in the community and I think you're actually quite a driver of innovation in the community as well. You've had a lot to do with um, trying to lift the startup um, community in Gladstone and trying to build the startup ecosystem, which I think is always a challenge in regional areas. Um, but in your role as president of the Multicultural Association, so that like, links to the migrant businesses, but also your role of chair of Women Connecting Women, how have you, what has been some of the challenges for you in terms of galvanising the entrepreneurial ecosystem within a region? If we were to speak about just the uh, migrant space when it comes to entrepreneurial assistance, I, I find that really, really hard. This is some, one of my goals to try and achieve this week is to get more migrant 
female entrepreneurs, if I may say so, um, into that space where they understand that they too can be entrepreneurs. That I find it to be, uh, find, I find that to be a challenge. But on the other hand, the biggest problem that we have with the migrant population, and I shouldn't call it a problem, the biggest situation we have with the migrant population is, again, that fear. Should we step out? Should we do something? Um, the fear also of a comfortable, cushy job, a nine-to-five job, and say, what if we don't succeed? Because there's a lot riding when migrants come over. We've left everything. Most of us, we have sold whatever belongings we had for in our, in our mo- mother country and come. So that fear of failure is really, really high. Um, so that is, that is something that I find really, really hard. Um, when I talk about women connecting women, um, I found that a lot of women are doing business. Their business may not be the uh, traditional startup kind of a business at this point of time. They might be into franchise businesses or um, what are they called? The internet marketing businesses like Avon and Tupperware and so on and so forth. And they are doing that. The drive is there to be successful. But because it is not their own idea, it fizzles out after some time. And this is in no way meant to disrespect anyone who is in that business. It's still hard um, to go beyond friends and family to do a business anyways. Um, so we've, I faced that. All of last year, I got to meet some really, really amazing Gladstone region-based uh, female entrepreneurs who are taking that leap and trying to make it work. It, I think it would be equally hard also, quite honestly speaking, for anyone who's not a migrant to start a business. We all go through the same, you know, um, questions, the same, um, how do we do this, the same financial constraints and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's a very (laughs) in the air kind of a thing. If I were to just say, oh, only migrants find it hard or only Australians find it hard. So they're challenges. And I think, I mean, it comes back, coming back to that question of trying to galvanise the community and building the connection. I mean, you know, one thing I've learned in regional areas is, as Meredith quite rightly pointed out earlier, is that it's actually your network that you build support from and actually gives you ideas and gives you connections to other people in terms of avenues for distributing your product. And, um, you know, in my experience in regions, I find some sometimes that doesn't happen. I think some regions are quite disconnected. And I know you've been working really hard for the last 12 months to try and get that connection happening. Is there a thing, there is there one thing that might galvanise that entrepreneurial community within the regions or is it just by sheer luck, is it by having lots of conversations or are you still, you know, no wiser? <laughs> <laughs> well, last one, yes, <laughs> to, a certain, <laughs> to a certain degree. Um, it has happened because of a lot of conversations to make that community connection <clears throat> as the Multicultural Association um, talking to people, finding out what they want, what is their issue, and telling them point blank sometimes that, you know what, this is not going to work. You got to get out of your, you know, your own club of, you know, the same country, the same neighborhood people and do things outside. Volunteer. You know, you will meet a lot of people. Speak up. If people don't know what you're facing, good, bad, or ugly, there's going to be no solutions about it. So, um, when it comes to, it, it's hard because obviously you meet resistance and you, I, yeah, I must say a half the time the resistance is more than the success, mm. but it will happen. It will happen. The one thing that I find that I found really, really amazing last year was the different 
festivals that migrants have coming from different countries. That got, when, when people find out about it, who are not from that country, say, for example, for India. So we have Diwali and we have Holi and so on and so forth. But when we have that festival and we invite our counterparts who may not be from that country, they come in, they see that India is not just butter chicken and naan and Bollywood movies, you know, then they, then, then that connection is happening. That understanding is happening. And that for me, I thought last year was what I saw happening and we would encourage people to invite other people who are maybe not from that culture to come and participate um, and learn about things. And it just changes the outlook. So that's something that'll be, I think, a, a long hill to climb, but we'll get there. It'll happen. It takes time, but yeah, it's festivals. Food always brings people together. <laughs> well, and it engages trust too, I think, which is one of the key components of social capital. And, you know, um, in some of my research, you know, it's proven that uh, entrepreneurs grow more successfully by developing a social capital strategy, particularly if they're in regions. And one of the core fundamentals of that is trust. And so, you know, if it takes food to bring people together to to drive trust, well, you know, use the strategy. I think it's the same. I mean, I've seen the multicultural festivals up there, and everybody, all walks of life, at those at those events. Yes, and they all come in for the food, the dancing, and. The- <laughs> And everything else. But it, like you said, I mean, think of it this way. Um, when we have, say, for Christmas, you know, and I choose a very, again, I say the word white, but a very non, say, Indian kind of a festival. When Christmas comes around and you uh, invite me to come to your home to partake of the Christmas lunch dinner, you're inviting me in a sacred space. You're sharing your space with me, your family with me. Your tradition. Uh, your tradition, your recipes and stuff like that. And then when I come out of that family, I feel like I have been accepted. So like you gave the example of the multicultural festival, a lot of people come in, they see things they've not seen before. They meet people they've not met before. And it really widens the horizon. So since we can't all travel en masse to India at the same time, you know, we just bring India here or the other countries and make that happen. I find it fascinating to see how people's, concepts, their preconceived notions or stereotypical notions are busted when they say, ah, so not all you Indians wear that bindi. Oh, no, you know, so stuff like that. And it's really fun because I love telling it to people, the butter chicken that you're eating, if that was served in India, no Indian would eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. No. So I love busting those notions, not in a bad way, but in a positive way to say, hey, listen, understand, we're also human. So, yeah. Well, I think we need to get to Gladstone and try your butter chicken by the sound of it. Come on over anytime. (laughs) Now you've invited us. Look out. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your definition of success, Richa? What do you you see success as being? If I were to look at success from the... um, multicultural association would be to be able to provide that connection within the different communities. So the Filipino community knows the Indian community, the the South African community knows the Indian, you know, so everybody is connected outside of workspaces, outside of seeing each other jog in, you know, in the Marina parklands and stuff like that. That's what I would look at as success the integration of the same would be really, really nice. It's a, it's a big thing, but we'll make it happen. On the other hand, when I look at success for dual nation, I'm just looking at acceptance, not just for me, 
not for my two babies who are going to grow up here and learn everything here and partake in all the different things that they get to learn. But at the same time, all the different people who I've met, or I see that they, you know, they either don't understand English, so their kids don't understand English, or the kids speak such beautiful English, but their parents are lost. You know, so to be able to bring that connection, give them that pride and say, yeah, so what? So what? I'm from a different country. I'm Australian. I'm saying Aussie, 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 oi, 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 when you shout it, you know, and we're doing the barbecue. Not all of us say that, you know. Not all oh. of us say that. No. Well, <laughs> I'm it, <kidding>. would be <laughs> good to, it would be good to be able to do that. So on both sides, there needs to be that acceptance. So that would be success for me if, it, if you look at it at a dual nation thing. They're both very admirable aspirations, I think. It's, it's, and if, if more people in business and out of business in the community had that kind of aspiration, I think it would be a much different community. There's me sounding like Pollyanna, but I just think that it, it's a nice thing for you to aspire to. I think it's important. It builds a kind of, kind of I know it sounds very cliche, but it builds a kind of world. Yeah, it does. There's enough hatred. There's enough finger pointing, you know, so why not? Yeah, make it a kind of world, I guess. Hmm. So one of our final questions that we ask, or we're going to be asking of all our guests, is if you could actually write a letter to yourself when you're starting out, what would you put in it? What advice, wisdom, counsel would you say to yourself about um, this journey that you're going on? My letter to myself would simply say take the leap because if you don't take it, you're not going to find out if you were actually going to be able to do it. Um, you would also not find out what your core strengths and abilities are because in the process of setting up a business or starting anything new for that matter, you learn so many things about yourself, some good, some bad, some downright scary, but you learn things about your personality, about your characteristics, and you know how hard you can push yourself and still be intact, you know? So my letter to myself would say, take the leap, do it. You don't know what's going to happen unless you do it. And at the same time, understand if you're looking to start your own business and you're doing this, understand it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be an overnight success. It is not going to be go, go, go and supportive all the time, but you got to do it before you know, you know, if you can or can't. Richard, I think uh, in summing up, the, there was one thing that you said and you were actually citing your husband when you, when you uh, mentioned it, bless him. And if you don't do it, you'll never really know if you could. And that to me is just such an important message to anyone who's thinking about taking that leap, as you say. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Meredith. 